This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to Human Things Podcast Season 2, Episode 3. Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 2. We're going to be joined shortly or whenever uh, by Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro. Uh, He is an Associate Professor of English at Grove City College, he is the editor-in-chief of Front Porch Republic, author of Loving God's Wildness, The Christian Roots of Ecological Ethics in American Literature, and Virtues of Renewal, Wendell Berry's Sustainable Forms. And he has come on specifically to talk to me about this book right here. This book is Reading the Times, a Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. I will explain a little bit more in depth why I wanted I read the book, loved the book, wanted to talk to somebody about the book, and as I tell him later, uh, my first, or as I've told him when I reached out to him, my first desire was to see if the author would be willing to talk to me about the book. And he was, and I'm grateful that he's come on. He has been generous with his time and willing to talk about this. Uh, and we'll cover more about what it's about. It's about engaging with the news as Christians today. And I will talk before he and I talk about why that's important to the mission of Merely Human Ministries and Human Things as a podcast, because it does matter. It is important Beyond just the idea of that it's my podcast and I can talk about whatever I want. But beyond just that, it is important and it does matter. And I do think it dovetails very nicely with what we do here and why sometimes it's important to take step backs, steps back. I'll get more into that in a second. I do want to talk about something that I think is weird that's going on in the world. And there's always something weird going on in the world today. But if you... I, it's funny because I was about to say, if you know me, you know I'm an animal lover. But I think most people are animal lovers. I mean, for the most part, they all are. I hear people say that all the time. Well, I'm an animal lover. I don't know a lot of animal haters. I think, I mean, just, I think the the foundational position that we all start with, the default position is animals are awesome. Uh, if, you know, the popularity of certain TikToks and reels online or any indication, most everybody loves animals. We can watch cats do stupid things, dogs doing, my wife is capable of watching reels about with dogs on Instagram for hours if I don't break her out of them because it's just dog after dog after dog. And she just keeps going and, and they're, they're all funny. So I, I feel bad. So I'll get on. It's like, get off your phone. What are you doing on your phone? And then she'll send me one. I'm like, that is hilarious. I mean, that's awesome. Okay. That one was great, but let's get off our phone now. And, and so it is not just that. I mean, there are great things that you see about animals. I, I particularly love elephants uh, because of that. There's some elephants over here that JD has that are hanging here. Normally I remove all of everybody else's decorations and put them away, but JD had elephants hanging. And so I left his elephants hanging. Oh, I'll see if I can reach them here without breaking them. Hey, there are elephants hanging. And there they go. There they go. Well, now you get a better look at them. They're going to go down on the table now. So there are elephants hanging there. I love elephants. Um, and I, one of my favorite things I've seen online recently is from that documentary. I don't know if you saw the elephant that uh, hijacks the sugarcane truck. That, that this ele- these elephants have learned where these sugar train sugarcane trucks are going to be passing by. And so rather than wandering around looking for sustenance, they just wait. And when the truck comes by, they step into the middle of the road, stop the truck, and then go and grab the sugarcane off the back that they want. And then they go off and eat. And, and they, they just wait. They know, they recognize what a sugar train, sugar cane truck looks like. They stand on the side of the road. When they see it coming, it steps out, it yells at the driver, it grabs its food, and then it goes back and waits for the next truck while it chews on its its, its bounty there that it's gotten. So I, I like elephants. I like animals. I'm fascinated by them. 
Uh, and but one thing that I think is slightly alarming, or just interesting, one it, it depends on how you def, how you understand what's actually interpret what's happening. I don't know if y'all are aware of this, but there is a pod of orcas that are now attacking sailboats in the Straits of Gibraltar. They're 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 messing with the rudders on sailboats, ripping them off, incapacitating them. Now. And not just, this is new. This is new. And I'll talk about in a second why I think this is so fascinating because because orcas, killer whales, or dolphins, uh, but they're also, they're generational knowledge animals. And what I mean by that is that they pass behavior and generate to, from generation to generation. They learn from the generation that preceded them what to do. And then they that stays within orcas' uh, fa- family lines going forward. They're not the only animals that do this. Fascinating. I'm, I'm going to mention crows for a second. I know if my daughter listens to this, she's rolling her eyes right now uh, because I talk about crows all the time. She's like, my dad loves crows. <laughs> Somebody told her the other day, it's like, your dad was talking about crows for like 30 minutes. And she's, she said, dad loves crows. He does that. And, and if you, by the way, if you don't read about crows and you don't understand why I love crows so much, you should go read about them because crows are amazing. And first of all, they live pretty much around human beings. Everywhere human beings live, there are crows that some, some, uh, some breed. And the other thing about them is they're incredibly smart problem solvers. Uh, but this is why I love them. This is going to sound crazy. Uh, they, they not only like learn human beings faces and dislike certain human beings, but they teach other crows to dislike those human beings. And I think that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the animal kingdom. You can read things about crows. This is absolutely, everything I'm saying is absolutely true. Go, go do your own research. I'm not going to like do, find a bunch of links for you, but you can go find this. Uh, so researchers who, who were the first people to discover this face problem, because when they first started doing research on crows on university campuses and they would tag them, uh, what they found was that the crows that they bothered would follow them around on campus and harass them. And they would remember them for long periods of time. So they started wearing masks when they work with crows so the crows don't know what they actually look like. And it's not just, by the way, the crows that they've harassed. The crows that they harassed taught other crows to hate them. And so generations of crows will harass human beings that bother them. So it's fascinating when you have animals that teach the next generation Things to do. I, I think it's hysterical uh, to the point of one guy who who was bothered, who the crows in this one neighborhood, I can't remember what he did. I think he would shoo them away or, or hated the crows and his wife was nice to the crows. And so the crows would go to the bathroom on their car, but only on the side of the car that the man was sitting, not on the side of the car that the woman was sitting. Uh, another story that's great. Um, this guy was feeding his, his the local crows in his neighborhood, which I don't know if you're familiar with the name of a group of crows. It's a murder. So the, um, a large murder of crows gathers in this guy's yard every day as he feeds them. Some other people. Uh, so he gets in a fight with one of his neighbors one day. Not about the crows. Completely unrelated to the murder of crows that he's feeding all the time. And the crows notice this guy being mean to the guy who feeds them. And so the crows... <laughs> started harassing his neighbor because he's their source of food and they don't like him. So I could go on and on as Nico would tell you with stories about crows. They are fascinating animals and they teach their children to hate people. And that cracks me up for reasons that I cannot possibly explain. But so this is why it's fascinating that all of a sudden out of nowhere, orcas have started attacking sailboats and it's not random. 
They attack the rudders of sailboats. They disable the rudders of sailboats in the Gibraltar area, this particular pod. And when the Coast Guard in that area was was try, uh, 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 towing one of these sailboats in to the shore because it had been disabled and couldn't move, and it was surrounded by a pod of orcas, the pod followed them in. It was as if, and so there's, so we're trying to figure out why, why have all of a sudden this pod of orcas started attacking? Because orcas aren't like this. They don't just start doing new things. Orcas are very disciplined animals. There's a reason why orcas don't attack human beings. We're not on their food list and they have a list, a real list. And here's how we know that orcas teach generational knowledge is because depending on what part of the ocean the particular group of our pods of orcas live in, and they're, they're different families of groups of orcas, they have a different list. And they only eat off that list, which means those orcas are born. They're taught by the, or the, the matriarchs or the lead the pods what this group eats, and that's all they'll ever eat. So if orcas don't eat you, and it doesn't mean an orca wouldn't do anything to you. I mean, I, I'm not saying go try to jump on their back and ride with them or anything. I mean, they're still a, an apex predator. They're still not something to be messed with. I mean, these things eat great whites. That's, that's how tough orcas are. They, they're, they're, we're, we've grown to be afraid of jaws. These guys eat jaws. And, and so they're not something to mess around with or to, to take lightly, but they're incredibly disciplined animals in that they have a, a behavior pattern that they follow. So that is why it's so weird that all of the sudden they're attacking the rudders on sailboats in Gibraltar, like right at the Straits of Gibraltar. It's weird because it's new and orcas don't do new things. That's just not what they are, right? So the question is why are orcas doing this? So here's the two answers that were being offered. One is it's just juvenile orcas that have decided it's fun to rip the rudders off of sailboats for their amusement punks. They just, they, they have just decided that this is how they have a good time. They're ripping the rudders off of sailboats. And then I guess that is the explanation for why they would follow many of the people who study them. And I, these people know more about orcas than I do. So if they, if they I have to take them seriously, if they think that's what's going on, they think they're just having a good time. They just have decided that this is good juvenile fun. We're just going to rip the rudders off of sailboats and watch how these people freak out about it. And, and maybe that's why they followed them back to the shore as they were being towed in. It was just part of the amusement of watching the effects of what they've done. So if these orca experts say that that is a possibility, then I'll accept that that is a possibility. It's all fun. Another group of people uh, of, of orca experts are arguing that are cetacean experts, I mean, what do you want to call it? they are um, getting revenge that something happened that the matriarch of this pod didn't like in relation to a sailboat. And now she has figured out how to disable the rudders of sailboats and is teaching other orcas to do that, to express their anger about something that happened uh, in relation to orcas and the human beings in that area that are out there sailing. That, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to laugh that that's, uh, you know, the fact that that's a possibility that we're looking at right now to the point that I don't have the name right here. They actually have like the, they've named the matriarch. They, they know the matriarch of the pod. They're talking about this, the experts that study the whales in that area. Like it's her, 
<laughs> That's basically what they're saying. One one group is saying it's it's just juveniles having fun, and another is that mom is mad about something, and she is now teaching everybody to take out her anger on them, right? It's like the mother orca mad about something, and now she is, and it's a very specific one. It's not just a theory, it's her. They're looking at an orca and pointing at her and saying she's mad, and she's teaching her kids now to take it out on the sailors near the Straits of Gibraltar, which I think is just awesome. <laughs> I mean, I know it's scary. It's terrifying for the people that are sailing, but because these things just don't happen, because orcas teach knowledge, the idea that, so it's going to, this is just whatever, just keep an eye on it. Just watch it. The, the growing escalating tensions between the pods of orcas and the sailors and the Straits of Gibraltar. If it is just them having fun, uh, it, it should, you know, we'll see how that grows. But if it is a new step in the tension, tension, tense relationships between sailors and orcas, and particularly this mom, then we may now have generations of orcas taught in that particular area how to disable the rudders of sailboats. Because once orcas develop a pattern, they tend to hold on to it forever. Uh, and so this is just... That was my fascinating tidbit for the day. <laughs> Something that I just found interesting uh, and that I keep checking on. I keep going back to look to see if it's still happening. Just this morning, the, the Weather Channel had it on their app, uh, a video of, of one of the sailboats being, and they've dropped the camera down in the water so you can see the orca grabbing their rudder and starting to pull on it, and they just surround these sailboats. And so the the elephants are stealing sugarcane, orcas are disabling sailboats, the world's gone mad. Uh, I guess is just the beginning of this podcast. All right, so to get ready for our guest, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro to come on later. There was an interesting discussion we'll, we'll have later and talk to him a little bit more about this, but um, the idea of talking about how we relate to news matters to me for more than just this the sake of an interesting book that I read that I wanted to talk about. Uh, there's a dehumanizing effect many elements of the world that we interact has on us and how we see the world, how we understand the world. What happens oftentimes when I'm talking to people, one of the first questions I ask them, if I'm talking about the issue of abortion is, um, do you think it would be objectively wrong for you and I to kill each other? Not subjectively wrong in the sense of it's a matter of opinion, or I just don't want to die or anything personal reasons like that. Is it objectively wrong for you and I to kill each other without an extreme justification motivating it. Is it wrong for human beings to kill each other? And they're going to answer one of two ways. Yes, it's wrong. No, it's not. Not objectively speaking. Well, I've had a few say no, but I've talked to a lot of people. I don't even want to hazard a number on it. A lot of people about this issue. I've asked a lot of people that question. I've asked a lot of audiences that question. Almost everybody that I've ever talked to says, yes, it's objectively wrong for human beings to kill each other. That's important information to have because once we have that question answered, then we both, we, we both start with, okay, here's what we agree on. That it's objectively wrong for human beings to kill each other without extreme justification. So if you favor abortion rights, if you think abortion's a good thing, if you think that women ought to be free to get abortions, whatever, <clears throat> however you understand your position, then you either think they're not human beings in the same way that you and I are, or that you think that pregnancy is an extreme justification. That, that's 
that's where we're left, right? So now we have something to talk about. One of those would be, how do you answer the question, what are the unborn? What is the unborn? Is the unborn one of this? You answer the question, no, I don't think the unborn is one of us. Because then if I ask the follow-up question, what do you think they are that we're allowed to kill them? What changed about you? If you understand that it's wrong for you and I to kill each other, that it's objectively wrong for human beings to kill each other, what changed from the embryo or fetus that you once were to the more mature human being standing in front of me now? It would be okay to kill you then, but not now. What I could do to you then, if I tried to do to you now, would be the worst thing that a human being can do to another human being. What changed? That matters if their answer is the reason that I accept that it's objectively wrong for other human beings to kill each other, uh, except under extreme justification. Well, if they accept that, that position, then they're going to say they're not human the same way that you and I are. So it's wrong for us to kill each other, but they're not one of us. Are they one of us? No. Okay. So now they have to tell me what they are, what, what the unborn is. We've argued before and we'll spend more time arguing going forward that from the moment of the completion of the fertilization process, a human zygote is whole and distinct life. It's a whole and distinct life. A human zygote from the moment it comes into existence is a whole and distinct life. That's the scientific position I'm going to take. And then I'm going to take a philosophical position that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. You have to now tell me what you think they are if we're allowed to kill them, if we both say that it's objectively wrong to kill other human beings. That's your responsibility. I'll tell you what I think they are. You tell me what you think they are. And then we'll figure out which one of our views best fits the world as we see it. The other answer that they could say is that they think it's an extreme justification, which I think is a weird position to hold, but that's where you get to bodily autonomy arguments. Yes, it's human. I don't, I don't discount that it's human, but pregnancy in itself is a, is a justification that rises to the level of being able to cover justifiable homicide, to, to make it a case of justifiable homicide. We can destroy a life. It's a human life. I got it, but we can destroy that human life, even though destroying human life is morally wrong because the circumstances of pregnancy morally justify the action. I've said many times on this program that I think that is just crazy because pregnancy just happens to be the way that every human being that has ever existed has come into existence. And every mother who has ever had a child and every one of us is the product of that relationship has experienced pregnancy. And for something so, and that doesn't mean I don't recognize there's complications. Of course there's complications. And this is a different separate conversation we could have. What I'm saying is, is that pregnancy, although weird, is ubiquitous and every human being that's ever come into existence came into existence through that process. That may change soon, but it hasn't changed yet. And so to say that that so common that every human being's come into existence by it scenario situation is justification for the destruction of an innocent human life is absurd. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a there's not a conversation to be had and that there aren't reasons that people hold that position. What I'm saying is at the end of the day, it's not a great argument. And I'm not the only person that's saying that I've mentioned multiple times in writing and on this show and other places, even pro-choice philosophers who defend the right of abortion ultimately sometimes come down to the view the bodily autonomy arguments just cannot get the job done. You cannot admit they're human and then say that pregnancy is legitimate excuse to kill human beings. The bar for being able to kill other human beings is morally, philosophically, and legally high for a reason, because that standard must be high to protect us all, and just being pregnant doesn't get that done. So that's what, if I say, is it objectively wrong to kill each other, and they say yes, that's the value of that question. We're going to talk about the science and we're going to talk about the philosophy. We're going to talk about what are they? Or we're going to talk about why we're allowed to kill other human beings. 
We have very specific directed conversations now. It should not be a wide ranging me just yelling about the things that I believe and getting angry at you and talking about you in unpleasant terms and you doing the same thing back to me. We have points to discuss, get to them. What are the unborn? Why are we allowed to destroy them? What are our moral duties and obligations to human beings? Why don't they extend to them? Under what conditions are we allowed to kill those that we recognize as human beings? Those are pointed conversations that can be had once we've asked that question and they've answered in the affirmative. Yes, I believe it's objectively wrong for you and I to kill each other. Well, what if they say no? They don't believe in the existence of objective morality. They have a whole different idea of what it means to be a human being than the one that I'm bringing into this conversation. That's important information to know because if somebody doesn't think it's objectively wrong to kill people, then there's no reason for me to try to convince them because if, they, if their position is there's no such thing as objective moral values, which by the way, there was a young man in San Francisco who was the first person I ever encountered that had that. I actually used him as a demonstration in class. I asked him if he believes it was objectively wrong to kill human beings. He said, yes. Afterwards, he came after me and he said, I answered yes, because I was afraid to say what I genuinely believe in front of that audience. So what do you genuinely believe? So I genuinely believe the answer is no. That there are no such things as objective moral values, duties, obligations. They don't exist. We are just animals living in a moral-less universe. There is no guiding principle. There are no rights and wrongs. There is just us sorting things out in a Nietzschean sense. He didn't use that term, but in, for him in a Nietzschean pursuit of power, who has dominance over the others, all these other things are illusions that are meant to help us to be able to social contracts are the way that we establish how we operate. It's not because one is morally superior to another, but the things that will most provide a, an environment that will have the least bad things in it and the most good things in it. The best opportunity to flourish, the least opportunity for you to steal everything that I acquire over time, even though stealing it's not objectively wrong because those things don't exist. That's the world he's looking for. So here's the thing. If he doesn't think anything is morally wrong, it's crazy for me to try to convince him that abortion is morally wrong. It doesn't make any sense. How he understands what he is as a human being matters to how I'm going to be able to convince him of the right or wrong of an opinion of the position on abortion. I have to, if he thinks there's no such thing as objective moral values, we have to take a step back and say, what are you? Not what are they, the unborn, but what are you? What am I? What does it mean to be a human being? Do you genuinely believe that we are just clumps of cells, atoms colliding with others in a determined universe where we make no choices, no decisions, and we live with no morality, no judgment. We live, we die, we cease to exist. It's all a fraction of a moment in a universe the size in which we live, which is incalculable. We don't matter. Is that what you genuinely believe? And then all this, things like rape is wrong, slavery is wrong, genocide's wrong. All these things are just illusions or, or verbal conveniences to help us to govern society in a way that makes it so that the most people possible can live without being killed by their neighbor, but even being killed by your neighbor is just something I just don't want to experience. It's not wrong with a capital W. It's not, not objectively wrong. I just don't want to get killed. And so I'd like a world where I'm least likely to get killed. I think that's a preferable word, world to one where I'm more likely to get killed. And so I endorse even those illusions that may make people more likely to not kill me. So, if we're having that conversation, we have to have that worldview conversation. And that worldview conversation requires deep reflection on what it means to be a human being. We should never try to convince somebody that doesn't believe in the existence of right and wrong, that abortion's wrong, because they don't accept 
that category of discussion at all. So we have to step back. And when we step back, now we have to look at what it means to be human and we have to start asking our questions. There are things that we see about the world around us. There is a way that the world is. What is the best explanation for that? Part of the way that the world is, is that we intuitively seem to recognize that there are wrong things that we can do to other human beings. What's the best explanation for that? Is the best explanation for that, that is the best explanation that we think that abusing and killing a toddler is wrong, that it's wrong, objectively wrong, really wrong. It violates our duties and accountabilities, real moral duties and accountability to other human beings. Or is the best explanation for that that we feel like it's wrong because we don't want our toddlers killed? And so to live in a community where our toddlers aren't killed, we have to not kill other toddlers. And so we allow this illusion to exist because it has benefits, evolutionary benefits. We're all more likely to survive if we're all letting our toddlers survive. But it's not really in the category of right and wrong. Well, which one of those is more Likely, which one of those makes more sense, explains the world around us. And, and so all of that to get back to why I wanted to discuss this book today. Because this book is about how we relate to the news and how we relate to the information as it's given to us. And how we, and not just in the sense of, and I think Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death is still a standard bearer that everybody should read. I still think it's something that ought to be read by everyone. It's still a very small, consumable book. Uh, and it helps us to understand the difference between when you go from a typographical society where we read to an image-based society where we understand everything through images. Uh, there's things that we have to consider about the way the news is presented to us uh, and so many different steps that we're going to get into if we have a conversation uh, in a moment here. But all of it is going to help us to understand what we are in the world that we live in. And how we answer that question will determine how we treat each other. And if we realize that the world around us is starting to believe something about themselves and we want to be able to convince them that human beings have dignity, that everybody has intrinsic human value, that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, if we want to be able to convince them of that, then we need to be aware of how they understand what they are and how they relate to the world around us. And so the consumption of media and news is a huge part of that puzzle. It's telling, they're learning what they are by how they relate to the information that's coming into the world around them. And it's having some seriously disturbing effects on the young people in our world. And all of us need to intentionally, we talked about that with Ben Mitchell when he was here. We talked about the idea of unreflective uh, interaction with technology, that we just interact with technology. And that's why I wanted to visit that same thing again this show when we're talking about what it means to, to interact with the news and with our sources of information, because what the news is, what we seek out and where we talk and the communities that we seek out, the way that we understand ourselves, all of it will affect one thing. And we'll get into that in a minute, how we treat our neighbors. If I ask you, is it objectively wrong for you and I to kill each other? And you answer yes. Then now we have to talk about who counts as a valuable human being. And we have to have conversations. If you say, uh, no, I have to find out what you think it means, what we think, what you think we are, not what is the unborn, but what are us? What are we? What are the human beings that we're encountering every day so that I can get us back to a place where we can start talking about the way that we treat each other, hopefully help you to see 
that objectively speaking, these things, rights and wrongs exist. I, I remember talking to that young man in San Francisco and I asked him a series of questions. Do you think raping a woman is objectively wrong? And he said, well, I wouldn't rape anybody, but I don't think it's morally wrong. I said, okay, do you think chattel slavery as it was practiced in the United States is wrong? And he said, well, I don't think it's a good idea, but I wouldn't tell other people what they can and can't do because I reject those standards of moral uh, behavior, objective moral values. I said, all right, do you think the genocide of the Jews in Nazi Germany, the, the effort to extinguish them through the most efficient and scientific means possible was wrong? And again, he said, I don't think it was a good idea, and I would never want to be involved in something like that, but I don't believe it was wrong in the way you're saying it. That's weird. That's weird because every time I ask you, and I ask him a couple other questions, every time I ask you if something's wrong, you tell me you think it's wrong. And then you say, but, and try to explain why it's not really wrong. You perceive it's wrong, and I perceive it's wrong, and we agree on everything I'm asking. So do you think it's more likely that our perception of the wrongness of rape and slavery and genocide is mistaken and illusion, and that it's all really just human beings, cells and atoms smashing up against each other in a valueless system? Or is it just possible that they're actually wrong and objective moral values do exist. That seems to be a better explanation for why we agree on these things. To which he said, by the way, he said, you know, we only agree with it because we were raised in the same culture. To which I responded, you know, I understand where you think you're coming from with that, but uh, I grew up in Georgia and you grew up in San Francisco. I promise you, we were not raised in the same culture. There's, there's so little overlap and the culture that you grew up in, the one that I grew up in, as, as to be almost foreign countries from each other. Uh, very little places of agreement. No, the reason that we both think rape is wrong is because rape is wrong. The reason we both think slavery is wrong is because slavery is wrong. That's the best explanation for why we would agree with that, and people in other parts of the country and the world would agree with it, and why we have reformers, and why we celebrate those reformers, and why we see victory over those things as, a, as progression towards something better and good because it is better and good and because those things are objectively wrong and that any society that limits them or gets rid of them as an evil that affects or impacts the people in their culture has done a good thing and serves the good and the good is real. That's where we are, where we are. That's why you agree. You agree that all those things are wrong because they're wrong. And your inability to, to embrace that is not in some way, you know, some sort of intellectual honesty that, that is commendable. It's confusing to every way that you and I understand the world around us. Now, it may be true. I, I'm not saying it's not within the realm of possibility that it's true. What I'm saying is it doesn't feel true that there's nothing wrong with rape. That's what uh, Scott Klusendorf, obviously a guest, obviously my mentor, obviously a friend, I, I, many years ago, he was having a conversation. I may have already mentioned this on the show. I don't know. But he was having a conversation after his talk, and it was this young man espousing the same view to him. That there was no such thing as objective moral values. And, and, and he had a group of, of feminist that students that were wanting to get after him that were waiting in line after, and he was tired. And he said, 
that uh, I, I found a way to get out and extract myself, extract myself from this conversation in one fell swoop. I asked and very loudly asked that young man, are you telling me then that there's nothing objectively morally wrong when a man rapes a woman? And the young man said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. And he said, and then I just backed out and got out of the way because those feminists descended on him with such violence and anger that I knew that they would set him straight on the existence of objective moral values and that I was now free to go back to my hotel. A genius rhetorical move that both helped somebody to understand the existence of objective moral values and wrongs and also got him safely out of the conversation so that he can continue his, his life elsewhere. Um, it, the world that we live in today, the way that we interact with the news, the way that we interact with media, the way that we consume information, it erodes our sense of self and our sense of an importance to ourselves, our understanding of our community, our understanding of what it means to be human. It desensitizes us to things while it enrages us for the moment. We have no long-term commitment to anything. It gets us all worked up at any moment that something happens, and then we move on to the next stimulus that gets us angry. And, and it is my belief that if we don't have a healthy interaction with how we get our information, that we are set on a pattern of just constantly bantering back and forth about things that people have forgotten they said. I'm angry with you because you said this, and I'm going to make a TikTok telling the world how angry I am with you that you said this. And the person that said this has already moved on to making other TikToks. And the only value in them having you pointing out that TikTok is hopefully you get audience for your TikTok so somebody else can get angry at you for what you said. And then they can get a video and then get eyes on them and everybody will keep talking to each other and tagging each other and saying these things to her. And it's outrage theater to the effect that it builds you an audience. But what it doesn't do is solve any problems. And so what I wanted to do was to have a moment where we recognize the importance and the issue of talking to other human beings about the value of human life on subjects like abortion, that we sometimes have to take a step back and we have to examine what it means to be a human at all and to reflect on how we ought to be interacting with the world around us. And there's very few things that are as important to that as to how we discern true information as it enters our life. Because discerning the truth from a lie is very important for how we're able to build a community. And building a community requires an investment of time and effort towards building a, a strategy and, a, and a, a culture and a society that makes it possible for as many people as possible to flourish. So in that light, we're going to be bringing on our guest now, Jeff Bilbro uh, from Grove City, to talk about his book, Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro is joining us. He is the author of Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. Uh, I've talked a little bit about you before this part, this segment, but what I wanted to do is when I first reached out to you, I read your book and loved your book and wanted to talk about your book with somebody. And then I reached out to you to see if you would be willing to be that somebody because you are obviously the expert on what you wrote. And you asked me a question initially. You didn't fully understand what your book had to do with what the focus of my mission seemed to be here at Merely Human Ministry. So you weren't rejecting me. I mean, you've been graciously willing to communicate all the way through. But I thought it was a fair question. And so I wanted to answer that for the audience before we get into this conversation. Uh, when we talk about human things, 
uh, as a podcast, and when we talk about the focus of our organization at Merely Human Ministries, we're talking about the intrinsic dignity of human value. And so when we, this actually was born out of COVID. Originally, as COVID hit, we were trying to think of a way uh, to address what it means to be human, going back to a quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, you know, if we'll be found by God, let us be found doing human things or something, I'm paraphrasing. To the, and, and also there's a quote in the second Dune book of all places uh, where some where a character is wrestling with whether what he is, is he a human or has he been turned into something different? And he, he tries to figure out what he's supposed to do. And Paul tells him that to just do the next human thing. And so that that term resonated when we tried to start this podcast back then. It just wasn't something we were enjoying doing. And so we rebooted it recently with a long form focus on bringing people in to talk about areas that they're experts in and to try to make a place where we're able to create content that we just think is good to put out. I mean, that's our goal. We just want to put good things out there, good reflective material uh, to answer maybe a, a, a space on the internet. And so when you asked, what does your writing this book have to do with what I do for a living? And I focus on the intrinsic dignity of human life. I realized uh, the answer to that question is that human beings are dealing with a lot in this world today. And that there's very few things that they're dealing with what's how to wrestle with the information overload that is constantly coming to them. I mean, we live in a, an age where it's as if a fire hydrant of information is just being focused on every human being all at once. And, and, and I have been doing, you know, in my own studies for years, you read the different studies where they talk about people today who have difficulty understanding the difference between satire and news, have a difficulty understanding the difference between advertisement and news, have different and, and the different, you know, tribal na nature of news organizations now. And so I felt like your book was just a, for me, it was a breath of fresh air, intellectual fresh air, uh, to take a moment and to think about how we interact as Christians and as human beings with this entity of news in our life. I've seen it destroy families, man. I mean, I've seen people who are just polarized by what channel they watch and in their different news sources where it's like, he's a Fox, I'm MSNBC. And until I, I've heard young people who complain, I go over to my parents' house and all they're doing is watching Fox and I just can't be around it anymore. And so it is destructive to human community right now, the way that we are a relationship with news is. Uh, and so I wanted to bring you on because I thought you had, just giving thought and insight to something that's deeply important to how we relate to each other as human beings. Well, thanks, Jay. That's, that's really helpful. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I talk to a lot of people who describe church splits or family splits. Um, and it does seem like the news and, and in part because there's so much of it, people have to kind of choose which stream to tune into. Uh, and if you choose differently from your, fellow church member or your fellow family member, you go far enough down that those roads and uh, it's hard to be in community with people anymore. And that's a real tragedy. So I think, yeah, I do think it's an important issue for our, for our culture today. And uh, I appreciate the, the, I guess, broad view of human dignity that you're describing. And I think that's, that's commendable. Yeah. And, and how we treat each other ultimately comes down to what we understand, what we are to me. Right. I mean, to, for yeah. me, I I've yeah. talked to other people that work in a broader, more general apologetics area. And I get to work with a lot of people. And we, I remember having a conversation, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I had a conversation with, but we we're discussing 
working together and, and why I said in many ways I'll work with you cooperatively, but I don't think we're a good fit to join together as an organization or things like that. And the question comes up, I ask them, if you were given one talk to talk to anybody about what would you talk about? And, and they oftentimes don't know. They start asking me questions about the audience and, and who they're talking to. And I said, I understand that. But for me, it's very simple. I, I am transfixed by the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, loving your God, loving yeah. God and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the preeminent focus of my life, which is why things like abortion or physician suicide really captivate me because there's questions of who is our neighbor and what are our obligations and duty to them or the main focus of my life. Uh, and so broader issues come into play in that because it all has to do with how we understand what we are in the world around us. So you are now our guest in the segment, what we call three things. So you set the agenda. You're going to tell us the three things uh, coming from your area of expertise that, that you want our audience to walk away from and in ref considering your book, reading the times, which I'm going to have uh, JD told me as I hold it up for the video, I have to hold it up here <laughs> so that everybody can see it, but the microphone's blocking it and, and, and also encourage everybody to, to buy and read. So we'll have a link for it also on our website and on the YouTube channel, but you're, it is the floor is now yours, Jeff. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks, Jay. Yeah, and when you asked me three things, I thought, well, this is easy because because uh, the book has three sections, so I could just choose one from each section. It worked out well for um, you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and and I and appreciate your focus on neighbor love too, because when I was trying to figure out how to frame the book, I realized that um, that commandment from the way that Christ distills the the Old Testament teachings into that one commandment of loving God and loving your neighbor really should kind of uh, indicate the goal for which we attend to the news, right? That the, the news from the perspective of a Christian mm -hmm. should be the information that we need today to love our neighbor well. And uh, I think that keeping that end in mind throughout is, uh, is helpful. But of course, how does that actually cash out on the ground? What does that actually mean is, is a matter of discernment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the first one, I guess, it's just the first section of the book's on attention. And um, maybe one of the core concepts I try to develop there is this notion of um, how when we attend to lots of tidbits of info, kind of headlines or uh, posts on, on or other social media, it tends to macadamize our minds. And uh, I got that image from from Henry David Thoreau, who's a 19th century author, right, written long before the internet. But he's responding to the new media ecosystem brought about uh, by the Telegraph, by um, steam-powered printing presses that are producing tons of newspapers. You, ever, you know, everybody can get a daily paper uh, throughout the country. And he's worried about this. And he says that our minds can be permanently profaned by the habit of attending to trivial things. And yeah. I think, oh, I, that could be written today. And uh, to sort of make his point, he draws this metaphor from uh, a Scottish road engineer who's got the last name of uh, McAdam. And he, and he says, well, this guy that built roads, instead of beginning with big boulders and kind of cobblestone type roads, which were the technology at the time, James McAdam said, no, just do a gravel all the way down and that will improve um, uh, runoff and it will prevent the roads from buckling during the freeze thaw cycle. And it turned out accurate. So we still have basically macadam roads today with a little pavement on top, right? So you get tarmac, which is just yeah. tar plus macadam. But Thoreau, so that's great for roads, but it's not great if that's your mind. Right? You don't yeah. want your mind to be 
to be pulverized into bits of gravel. <clears throat> and so he says, if you attend to trivia all the time, then over time, your mind will literally become uh, ground down into fragmentary bits. And the result is that we're less able to offer resistance to think critically about whatever advertising or political slogans or memes, you know, people with power want to uh, feed to us. We're just sort of passively accept and take and become passive consumers of information. So if we want to be able to respond redemptively and thoughtfully to the news of the day, we have to avoid having macadamized um, minds. And that's a matter of habits. It's a matter of the, the kind of practices of attention that we engage in on a daily basis. I think that, that what was fascinating to me when I first, because I, I, there's things that I think that if you read in areas like this, you become very familiar with, like Neil Postman's work in Amusing Ourselves to yep. Death. People talk about that a lot. That comes up a lot. Uh, for me, when, I mean, if you I reading Pascal, uh, it used to be Pensees when I was younger, Thoughts, or however that yep. people want to talk about it now. And he has, I think, one, one of the things I always talk about when you read Pascal is like he'll have, he'll, you'll have a section that lasts multiple pages and it's brilliant. But then he'll write two lines and it's, it blows your, it blows me away. Yeah. And one of them was, I think, if I remember the order correctly, he said that, uh, you know, trifles console us because trifles annoy us or something like that. Right. That, that we are consoled yeah. by trifles because we are disturbed by trifles uh, and his condemnation then of that same idea. And so I was fascinated with the, because I wasn't aware of Thoreau writing about what you said or, or, or his concerns there. And I want to go back to one of those points that you made earlier or that you spoke on when you first started talking about, is it true that what we're saying here is that during Thoreau's time is, is where we move from more of a weekly news cycle to a daily news cycle. That part of what Thoreau, because I I thought you, if I understood correctly, Thoreau was saying, you know, I don't need to know the news every morning. I need to be focused on the world in which I live. And this yeah. daily news cycle that's being introduced to us is going to be disruptive to our uh, relationship to our community. Yeah, that's right. And it, it also, I mean, if you think about it, the, the printing press that Ben Franklin and the other revolutionaries used is basically identical to the one that Gutenberg used. They hadn't really developed. And I think in the, in the colonial days, there's something like 50 printing presses in America and they're all publishing the same, you know, they all uh, reprint the same articles that have appeared. So you're getting a fairly limited diet of news and it's all basically the same. And then after the industrial revolution starts taking off in America in the early 19th century, you get uh, improvements to the press. It becomes iron, they can use steam power, uh, they get rotary presses. And so all of a sudden it's much cheaper to print newspapers. And then there's also new new printing, uh, new paper technologies. So every political party starts their own press. Every de- little Christian denomination starts their own press. You have multiple papers in town. And the news goes from being a, a unifying thing, right? Everybody read yeah. the same newspaper that week in Kentucky story to being a marker of your denominational or factional or ideological uh, distinction. It becomes a fragmentine thing. And, and I think, you know, we see clearly similar features in the news media today where um, uh, we all consume different sources because there's so much of it. And um, and it keeps us worked up all the time, like you're talking about with Pascal's uh, 
observation. But we're all worked up about different trifles. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. There's so much of it and it's so disparate that it, uh, yeah, that it has the result of, of fracturing us. And not even just different trifles, like we're irritated if you're not obsessed with what I'm obsessed with. At least that's what right. I find a lot, that it's not yeah. enough that you you care about, that I care about this, but that if you're not caring about it, then it's somehow a judgment on your ability to evaluate the right. importance of different criteria. One of the things I think is fascinating is you said that this, this, um, this translates well into the same concerns we have today is recently I was listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast and he was talking about a debate that he did a monk debate that he did, uh, where if you're not familiar, the, the audience members are not familiar with monk debates. They're, they're organized by an individual in Canada. What happens is there's one coming up or just happening right now in AI, uh, where he has people come in and they represent a different view. And so as you go in, the audience is asked to rep, to vote on where they stand on that, that issue going in. And then after the debates, the exchange on the stage, you vote again. And the winner is whoever got more. So if there was a change of mind at all, then that person won. So for background here, Malcolm Gladwell was asked to talk during COVID and things that were, when, it, when that was at its highest peak, whether or not uh, mainstream media should be trusted. And he was, I can't remember his partner, but he was going against uh, Douglas Murray and Matt Tiabi. And I thought anybody that's going against Douglas Murray in that format has just lost their mind. <laughs> they don't understand what they're getting themselves into. But he, he shares that he had the worst defeat ever in the history of monk debates in that exchange there. And the numbers of people that went from being neutral to the issue to going over towards Matt Tiabi and Douglas Murray's side. But for, for the point of what I wanted to say here, there was an interesting point that Matt Tiabi talked about as we see the extension of Thoreau's concerns. He says, when Walter Cronkite, he says, let's look at the age of Cronkite as a newsman. He said, Cronkite came on and talked for an hour about national news. He talked to a room full of people who had diverse opinions. They were all a family sitting there to watch the national news together, right? They'd, they would have gotten their local news before Cronkite came on. And now Cronkite comes on and he talks and he said, and the whole family has to be in the room together if they're interested in watching it. And Cronkite has to speak in a way that would deliver the news to every person in the room. And, and to some degree or another back then, there was some level of conjecture about what any particular newsman's viewpoint was politically, but it, it remained a mystery to some degree or another because they felt some obligation or duty to, to project neutrality and to deliver the news to all the people that were in that room. That's how Matt Tiabi describes this. Everyone in the room together, listening to the same news and maybe coming to different conclusions, but at least it's still a community experience in the news. And it was a brief experience. You were given the most important information over an hour period. And then you go to CNN and then we go to the Gulf War and then it becomes a 24-hour news cycle. And then it becomes this thing where news is aimed at tribes, right? That you're aiming specifically right. at different people. And that, and Tiabi's point is the way that news is structured today is divisive by its nature. It's making its money by projecting very specific audiences to win that audience over. And, and I see that we were talking about Thoreau's initial concern. This is, he's like daily news is too much. And then Tabby's saying going from yeah. nightly news to 24-hour news cycles is too much. And then we go from 24-hour news cycles yeah. to specific stations aimed at particular ideological groups. 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And it, it's fascinating to me how that same kind of cycle has replayed in different technological eras, right? So again, in 19, mid 19th century America, you had every, every kind of faction within the political party had their own outlet. But then for various reasons, there was a consolidation that took place the end of the century, well after the Civil War, that kind of led into this more or less unified uh, ecosystem in like 30s, 40s and 50s of America. And then it, it happened, it split off again. So it kind of goes in cycles and I don't, you know, there's, there's problems with uh, having kind of a monolithic voice yes. where this is the consensus opinion uh, that kind of shuts out uh, divergence, but there's also clearly problems with what we have right now where it's marketed to these niches and um, the, the financials are that you keep your base angry and isolated, right? So I'm not saying like there's some golden era, but we have yeah. to be aware of problems of our current situation and try to avoid the worst of those tendencies. And I think Ben Mitchell used a term last when we, he and I talked about AI, he was talking about, I think what was the term non-reflective use of technology. Is that what he said, JD was just, or unreflective use that, you know, one of the things we have to walk out, watch out for is, and I talk, and I used to made a similar point in a talk I'd given on AI a year two, a couple of years ago, where the problem is when we're thoughtless in our interaction with yeah. the media, that yeah. we're, we're, we just get into a pattern of, going to it for no particular reason. Uh, and, and, and so, we, but these, when you talk about these trivialities, uh, uh, macadamized, is that the way that you say it after macadam's yeah. name? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that I, I just, if we could talk just a second more, if you could parse out this idea of what it means to fracture our mind, to go from big boulders to small things. Cause you do a great job of that in the book. Yeah. And if you have a second that you could, could paint that picture. Up for yeah. I minutes. mean, maybe Maybe the best sort of contemporary description of this is a book like Nick Carr's The Shallows, where, but I think there's a lot of people who have written about this and, and have experienced this, where people say, you know, I used to be able to read a book and now I struggle to read a, a long form essay, right? I used to be able yeah. to attend to a complex idea over many hours or days. And now if it's not like amusing, if not getting a new hit every few seconds, I can't focus. And I think that's the reason of uh, f patterns of attention where we flit from idea to idea to idea, from headline to headline. We do one thing and, and then get bored and put it down and turn to something else. So, you know, that, that neuroplasticity, the way that our habits of attention actually rechange our the structures in our, in our brains is both discouraging, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's also encouraging that we could we could rectify that, right? If our Thoreau's writes, you know, if our minds have been profaned by these habits of, of attending to ephemera, the solution is to shut the shut the doors of our minds and uh, practice attending to things that matter. So I think the joy there is if we change our media diets. The first few weeks it's going to be really hard, but after a while it becomes pleasurable and, and easy again to to read a book, to read an article, to listen to a long form podcast and sit with an idea rather than expect a lot of, uh, you know, cuts or changes or quick, uh, jerky, always something new type formats. Yeah. And it's a, it is astonishing 
how addictive, psychologically addictive that 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 pursuit of that like dopamine surge we're talking about that you get right. with interaction, and and it's not helpful. That we one of the things that you we discussed with AI and that you can read is that like in news news organizations now use AI to evaluate the news that they've compiled and put into a database. And then it says stories like this went viral before right. headlines like this. And so it's choosing right. the news to focus at people based not on whether it's a, something that's necessary to know. I, lo- I love Neil Postman's description of it as non-actionable information, things that you can't do <laughs> yeah. anything about that you cannot impact in any way. And yet at the same time, they're stressing you out and they're upsetting you and they're, you're, you're focusing your attention on it. Uh, and, and that with the news, but when I, I have my, our family had strict rules about how you were allowed. We would never, we, we never for, forbid our kids from using technology. I know some people do, I don't judge them. And we never were people who just let our kids just do whatever they wanted with technology there. I probably do judge you a little bit if you're one of those people, but um, <laughs> yeah, no judgment if you're really restrictive, but if you're overly permissive, you're going to get a little judgment from me. But one of the things that fascinated me in that was that if I turn, if I told all of my kids turn everything, no screens, no TV, no outside interaction, you're turning everything off for the next five hours in our house. It's just, we're going dark on all of that. After about 30 minutes of, of watching them wander around, <laughs> like trying to figure out what they are again in this world, all of a sudden your house becomes like an 18th century house, right? They're, they're, where people are breaking out cards and playing games and they're knitting. And it, it just gets really interesting how quickly they adapted and enjoyed yeah. themselves. And to the point that I remember when COVID hit, when, one of my children came to me and said, is it wrong that in the midst of all this that other people are struggling with, I have found that being able to shut out the world is good for me, right? That this, that I feel like a, a, a weight has been lifted off of me to not have this constant need to interact with the world. And they said, can I cut it off even more? I said, yeah, you know, you have my blessing on that, but it is amazing in my household how quickly my kids adapted. Yeah. They were miserable for a short time, and then they just found things to amuse themselves. And it could be something like one of those balls with a cup that you flip. I mean, it was always something right. silly that you wouldn't think is amusing now, but they just locked in on that because it was a way to, to entertain themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's important that we remind ourselves that it's, uh, it's not irreversible. It's, it's yes. remarkably easy to, uh, to kind of recover a sense of attention, a sense of our presence, the presence of others, and uh, to engage those who are uh, nearby rather than having our kind of rubbernecking about uh, tragedies and, and train wrecks that are happening far away. Yeah, and, and that your point, Thoreau's point, Neil Postman's point, all of it goes yeah. back to community, right? It's the idea yeah. that Thoreau's concern was not just that it's too much information. It's that you have a world that you live in right in front of you. Yeah. And you have to be interacting. You have to be present in that world. Yeah. And this will That's take right. you away from that. Uh, so it goes back to, to your ob- our obligation, our call to love our neighbors, right? If, if we're yeah. um, all worked up about kind of non-actionable distant drama, we'll be less capable of seeing our neighbors, much less responding redemptively to their, their real needs. And they get, people can get so angry 
I talk to young people. This and it's much worse for young people than it is for adults. For those of us who are older, we we feel much freer to disconnect when we feel. Hopefully, you do. And you feel much more yeah. freer to disconnect from social media when it becomes destructive. Uh, but I have talked to multiple young people who, when it became clear that they didn't share particular opinions, may have to do with abortion or, or an issue like that, with their, their, the, the number of their friends that were setting the agenda on social media, they became targets and attacked through these. And, and why, right? Like why, what, because these people became motivated by people online. I've talked before about celebrities out there who go online, who try to activate the emotion of people through social media and are getting people activated and making them angry at other people and driving them to have hostile reactions over tidbits of news that really have nothing to do with the people that are getting angry with each other during the course of that day, right? The thing that happened is so distant and so not of the concern for the moment with those people, but these kids become targets for hate and anger and direct messages and online bullying because they're being told that they have to respond a certain way to something that's going on in the news. So it's, an, it's incredibly important uh, to be able to understand that, that point of Thoreau's and the one that you're making in that book of the macadamized uh, minds, that this is destructive, not just to you as an individual, but to your ability to relate to the other human beings around you, to have basic empathy for yeah. what's going on, to recognize what's truly important, which was Postman's point, right? You're, you are missing what's what's yeah. truly important right in front of you uh, because you're so distracted by things you yeah. can't do nothing about. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's a temptation. I think uh, I, I would hope that uh, even young people, if they can muster up the courage to, to disconnect or to opt out of those kinds of destructive online communities, that they too would encourage, well, sorry, that they too would experience the, um, the rewards of, um, focused attention to meaningful things and a genuine community with people who care about them, not just how many you know likes or followers their posts can can garner. I had an interesting argument with my kids recently because they got they got frustrated at me becoming frustrated with how much they're reading books because <laughs> they they said for years you told us get offline and read books and now we're reading books and you're yelling at us to to and I'm not yelling but they're saying. About it, so you're, I, I love the fact that that's where we are now and that I'm having to ask you to stop reading the book and come and talk to your mom and I. I said, but so at least you're doing go outside. something. Yeah, or to go outside and do something. So at least you're doing something interesting. And, and there was an argument between two of my kids the other day that I thought was beautiful. I'll, I'll let you go on to your next point after this, but I just thought it was funny from what you're saying with kids is that one of my son, my son's 20, my daughter, my, my youngest daughter is 14 and we were driving in the car together and my son was messing with his phone too much. And I said, stop messing with your phone, man. It's driving me crazy. And he said, Nika is on her phone and you're not bothering her. And Nika from the back said, I just got done reading a book for four hours before I picked up my phone. I haven't seen you touch a book yet. And, and it was, it was a great moment because my, my, my 20 year old, was done. He knew, he knew she had him, right? She said, I spent four <laughs> hours in books and then I picked up my phone for a moment. You have been on your phone off and on that entire time. She's like, get your mind out of your phone and then it will be acceptable for you to pick it up every once in a while. And, and I thought it was such a wonderful correction uh, coming from my youngest to my oldest there. Um, but yeah, go ahead now, now back to you for your, for your next point. Uh, well, that's, that's great when uh, siblings hold one another accountable, right? That's yes. what we need. 
Yeah. I don't even, and I think and it's they just hear it also, better coming from their peers. Yeah, it's also just my family is argument by nature. They 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 they're awful. Yeah. They, they blame me. They just tear it. In my household, if you say anything even slightly wrong, you just have to wait for the the onslaught of criticism to come that you've made a mistake. And, and it's is and if I say what is y'all's problem, it's every time something comes to my mouth, even just a little bit wrong, my heart just drops because I mean, here it comes. And and they they all respond back. You made us this way. I mean, whose fault do you think it is? This comes from you, right? The, 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 you must be correct. So so I think there is some some loving correction there. There is also some of just my family's nature of you will win. We will win yeah. this argument. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, so the second the second second section of the book then is about time, and uh, yes. I'll just sort of break this into three parts. Uh, it's kind of idea of telling time as a Christian. Um, so I start this off by thinking about the two Greek words for time, Kairos and Kronos, and maybe one way of, of, uh, naming our challenge today is to say that we inhabit almost exclusively Kronos time, mm. uh, kind of consecutive chronological to where we get that word from, you know, the clock time, yeah. sequential time. And so we're really in, you know, if you look at the newspaper or your social media feed or anything, those are, that those uh, media are organized exclusively by the clock. You know, what is present right now? So um, the only thing that, you know, links my, my friend's post about uh, what he's, what he read that day or somebody's outrage about what's going on across the world or an advertisement, they're all current, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no other organizing principle, but um for, for much of human history, people were locked into a different mode of time, Kairos time, which is uh, sort of dramatic time or cyclical time, you know, the, the right moment to do something. You know, I don't really know exactly what clock time it is today, but I know the sun is up, so it's time for breakfast, time to go to work. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of a, a sort of cyclical, you know, that's why for most of human history, there wasn't BC or AD, there was well, this is the 16th year of this king. Uh, and I don't really know what you your year is because you've been king, so we can't really compare times. But uh, maybe over there, they keep track of this is the third year after the big flood or something. But there's not like a universal standard time that everything can be linked to. And um, the, the Christian view really tries to hold both of those in tension, that uh, th that Christ, you know, says Christ enters into human history. He comes in a particular moment in clock time, in Kronos time. And uh, and yet he says repeatedly when people, uh, you know, ask him what he's up to, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet yeah. come, until his hour does come. And those are always uh, Kairos, right? It's like the moment is right for me to do this act. And uh, in light of that that Kairos drama that Christ participates in, um, the way that we value earthly events is radically upended, right? Instead of just valuing uh, kings or big events, the, the people that seem to mediate between the, the hoi polloi, the, the common people and the gods, um, we value radically every individual person and, and uh, their daily concerns. So um, I, I think a lot of people, you know, I, I draw on Eric Auerbach or Dante or these other kind of uh, Christian uh, imaginative people who try to reckon with the implications of the incarnation. 
that this changes the way we tell time because now we have to um, care about how Peter, this this Galilean fisherman, right? What what's he up to? Uh, we have to care about individual people. Yeah. But um, without getting sort of just caught up in what what is happening today, but more how it, are the individual choices, the individual events of particular lives. Um, meaning how are they becoming significant in this eternal drama that is God's cosmic creation uh, and redemption of a fallen world as he brings it toward its, its ultimate uh, resurrection. So it, it's a it's a challenge, I think, because Christians are kind of caught between these two times. One example I look at is the, the Hebrew prophets who are always yeah. speaking from the eternal word of God. You know, this is this is God's character. This is what God's values but they're always applying it to contemporary um, political or social or economic events in the lives of Israel, right? Like this economic justice is wrong because God's character is to, is to care for the poor. Are these, you know, these political rulers are evil because they violate God's sense of justice. So I think the prophets are a good example of kind of inhabiting that tension between uh, God's Kairos ongoing drama of, of redemption and the particular everyday concerns uh, that we we find ourselves present in. Yeah, and, and the, to help, I mean, to, to go back and to, to reinforce the point that you're making, and I think I, I remember, I think this is in Borston's Discoverers, where he talked about uh, the discovery of time in the sense where you're talking about chronological yes, time, yes. chronological time, where he goes through and maps out the, the difficulty that... Prior to that, as you talked about, life was understood through events, uh, yeah. the, 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 the seasons and, and the day. And, right. and even the, the way that it's, it's difficult, I think, for people who haven't, because we're so steeped in Kronos time. We're so steeped in a chronological understanding of how the world, it just is reflexively the way we see things. You see it play itself out and how we try to understand even scripture. As you mentioned, the, the, the hour has not yet come. Or it's people try to wrestle with this idea of, there being a time when Jesus will wrap things up and will come back. Well, there are you people, people get obsessed with, let's find a date. Like right, let's right. Find, we're, we're heading towards a date. It has to be on a schedule somewhere, right? Because we understand everything in full unfolding as a series of events in a, in a proper order. And they're working themselves towards a goal. And that's what you say is the problem with chronological understanding of time without a deeper event understanding of time is yeah. that we see everything as a series of events unfolding towards something, some, some telos involved in there, some, yeah. some building toward where we are improving where it's the arc of history yeah. uh, moving towards justice. It's the, it's the, the improvement, the progressive. And I think one of the things you bring up that I think is funny because I think about this as well. Uh, and things are funny to me that may not particularly be funny to other people though, uh, is as you talk about understanding conservatives and for people who are progressive and see this chronological unfolding as moving towards progressive liberal society, that all nations are on that arc to some degree or another. And, and to me, the funny part about that is that because of that, if, if you're talking to somebody who takes this progressive view, that society is progressing towards some liberal secular position, naturally, that that's just a flow of history, they have an incredible amount of patience for people who are doing hor horribly violent things in certain cultures because of right. this dismissive view that they're just not far enough on the arc yet. 
Uh, they're backwards if, still. Yeah, that's right. They're, they they can be excused because they're just primitives. But the person right. in my neighborhood who disagrees with me is genuinely dangerous because they are fighting against what is the proper movement of progressive liberalism or secularism of society. And, and they are intentionally, they ought to know better, right? They have computers, they have Facebook, they have Instagram. They ought to know better than this by now. Right. And so they're dangerous, not the people that yeah. are over there killing people for being homosexual or whatever is going on in different parts of the world. They're just on the different part of the arc. They'll get there. You know, right. it'll, it'll get right. them. It'll, it'll absorb them sooner or later. You are truly dangerous yeah. if you don't buy what I'm saying, because you ought to know better. You live in a society that's gone past that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a very strange way of kind of um, slotting moral judgments into this kind of calendar of human civilization and progress or something, right? Yes. Um, and I think it stems back, you know, I argue it stems in some ways from Hegel and his view of history. But, but it's also... And I think it's helpful as Christians to recognize that in some ways it's a kind of secularized, distorted view of a Christian view of history, right? We too believe that, that history has a goal. Yeah. It's just not a goal that shows up. It's not like humans are getting better gradually. That's, yes. that's not a thing in the Bible, right? It is that uh, Christ has come once in time and Christ will come again. And that's the culmination. That's the goal of history. That's the, that's the event um, that's to tell us. But it's not like our daily life uh, and our effort as humans to improve morally is going to bring that about, right? That's, that's on God's yes. schedule and that's God's work. So it, it's, it's odd how these ideas get inherited from Christianity and then shorn of their transcendent referent and then manifest in ways that are uh, quite different than their, their Christian origin. Yeah, you see that a lot. Uh, I know Tom Holland's book Dominion. There's some some issues in there, but I think there's exactly his yeah. his major point there of look you, you and and he's not the only one to write about this, but just that's probably just the most popular yeah. version I've read of it, where he says basically Christians have had this positive impact on the flow of justice and history that the people who are highly critical of the Christian belief love, like they love right. that that justice has been added, all those good elements. It's just a, they desire deeply to be able to disconnect the reason that those things were introduced ultimately into the flow of history uh, right. from, from the flow that they like, right? They, they like the flow. Right. They don't like the, the genesis of that flow. And so there's just a, yeah. a, an effort to disconnect those two things. We can be all of these things without believing all of those things. And no matter how much you try to tell them, I, it, it's not clear that it makes sense to be those things though. Right. Without the, right. You're, you're right. We can be, you're absolutely correct. And we can recognize that it's better to love our neighbors and we can recognize that it's better to, to get rid of slavery. We can do all of those things, but the, the, the judgment that those are improvements is what becomes difficult once right. we remove it from, right. from those other things. Yeah. And the challenge as Christians, I think is to figure out how to, um, I don't know, try, try to reclaim the the Christian origins and the Christian kind of cosmos within which things like justice or neighbor love, within which, uh, you know, I, I can care about what happens today because God is at work in history. Uh, but yes. but I shouldn't care about, you know, what's happening today because is this advancing history's arc or retarding history's arc? Like, which side of history am I on? That shouldn't be the metric. It should be you know, how is God's kingdom breaking into the world? How is the yeah. city of God 
uh, at hand today. Um, so it's just challenging, I think, as Christians to like resist some of the the secularized uh, inheritances, I guess, of the Christian Christendom, and uh, and not throw the baby out with the with the bathwater, but but actually try to recover the Christian significance of why I care about what's happening right now. And the event, I think the idea of understanding the world to events, it, it, it does. I notice when I talk, I talk to, I get to talk to a lot of college students. And when I talk to them, we talk about the way that the Bible is written. So understand like for the, the way Luke as a historian operates, right? Luke tries to give you details that you can match up to what he's telling you all around those things. Right. It's not chronological time. He's, but in understanding the stories that are given, the way that they're given, there's not an obsession of everything unfolding in a repeatable way. So that right. if I tell this story every time, this has to happen first, this has to happen second, this has to happen third. That's just not the way they thought about things. It would have been alien exactly. to them for you to have been obsessed about that kind of a detail. Uh, and and that you would see that as a problem would be confusing yeah. to them. Because there's, oh, look, I'm just yeah. trying to give you a series of events that happen just so that you can understand those events. Not and then the meaning, more. right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you're exactly right. That's why people who are like, who, who obsess about, you know, the gospel's apparent uh, disparities, they're just not recognizing the, yep. the significance and the structures that people at that time uh, made sense of the world, right? It wasn't about first, second, and third, and fourth chronologically, but about what, what order should I place these events to make the meaning of Christ's life apparent? And, yes. and different gospel authors could come to different conclusions on that. It's okay. So Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. The, the, you, you talk about, I think it's interesting because um, you talk about who you think recently in modern political history or, or the most famous person who embodied this view of chronological time or spoke the most in it to the most impact was President Obama. And you talk about how President Obama spoke in these terms to great effect. I mean, he was a, yeah. he was a very inspirational figure to a lot of people in our culture and even people who, who didn't like his politics seem to like him uh, to some degree or another. And, and to feel like at least we're talking to a very serious guy, uh, the way that he communicated. Yeah. yeah I mean, I don't want to, to, you know, pick on him, but I think he, he picks up on this strain of rhetoric that goes back to different progressive, actually progressive uh, Christians from the 19th century about the arc of history and about being on the right side of history. And he, he would repeatedly use that, that kind of language to describe America or his policies. Um, and even, you know, even some progressive critics uh, like Tanahasi Coates don't like that. So it's, it's yeah. not just uh, Christians who criticize that. Maybe though we have different reasons, I suppose, for criticizing that. But I think Christians should be very wary of thinking that history is some kind of, that, that just human secular history uh, is a meaning bearing transcript that we can read, uh, and that it's going somewhere, yes. right? I think if human history make takes on meaning to the extent that it is marked by these events of God's handiwork, right? That God creates that God, of course, uh, the, the incarnation, God's coming again and, and his works, uh, in, in the interim, that's where the meaning arises. And you can't, yes understand the significance of history without 
God's hand involved in it. And C.S. So, Lewis warned And this, about this goes that back too. to what you said earlier. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. I was going to say, this goes back to what you said earlier about um, uh, the kind of uh, smug judgment, I suppose, of those who are on the wrong side of history that are close at hand and the kind of uh, kind of a condescending past to people uh, at other parts of the world, maybe who yeah. are deemed less developed and therefore they get a pass. So I think, yeah, it's not a healthy way of, of trying to make sense of the news of the day. And yeah, I love condescending. It is. I mean, ultimately, it's not that they they like those people or favor those people. It's that they, they think of them as children, right, that, yeah. that can't control themselves because they haven't been blessed yet with, and, th and that's the, that's one of the things is the, that at root of that view is that if we could just introduce those backwards people to the, the, the beauty of this society, that they would naturally gravitate towards the arc of history and join us right. within this flow towards this greater place of, of what it means to be human beings. I do think one of the things that there's a couple of things that I've kind of flaked on what I was going to ask a second ago, or I was going to say, but, but one thing I was thinking about earlier is I've seen a lot of people struggling to try to make sense sometimes of the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson over the last few years. Uh, and, and they struggle to figure out why this guy has had the impact that he's had. And, and if you listen to his messages, I mean, he, he's a master at just wandering all over the place when he talks, but every once in a while he says something that's, that's really, really interesting. Uh, and one of the things I remember him hitting as a psychologist, as, as he points out a lot, as a clinical psychologist, is both the idea of, I think what, what the, that chrono chronological view takes away is, is the idea that things can go horribly wrong, right? Uh, that, that, that human beings, as you said, we're not progressing and getting better all the time. And so we, we miss how the evil we're capable of, of guarding ourselves against that. Like Solzhenitsyn's line about the line between our hearts, right? right? The battle between good and evil goes directly through the heart of every human being. Right. And if, if we be believe ourselves to be some, some apex being that has now, we are at the moral peak and it's only, only going to get better. It's just going to keep getting better. Right. But we're at the moral peak right now. We are far better than everybody that came before us. Those backwards idiots that believed all these awful things. And we are representative of the culmination of human progression up to this point. And, and that's what I think one of the reasons that th sometimes re Peterson does resonate with people because he'll say things like, no, we are capable of deeply dark things at any moment. Yeah. I mean, a series of events could happen that'll turn you into a dark place. And at the same time, we're capable of great things and enduring and suffering and coming yeah. out better and having a forward looking view of trying to be a better human being. But he centers all of that obviously as a union on your identity as an individual and how you can progress towards some greater person of yourself, some version of yourself, or you can continue to wallow in a bad version of yourself and you can turn either way. And I think C.S. Lewis, that was the point I was making earlier, that when C.S. Lewis warns about this, he says, to understand regression is bad by nature is to miss the fact that sometimes going back is a corrective move, right? That yeah. things progressed in a bad way. And right. so there are points where we have to look at where things are going. If we see progression as always the nature of things and history moving in a direction, then we, we necessarily start to look at the past with suspicion and judgment yeah. and all things in it. Because by nature of it existing in the past, it's less than we are today. And he says, yeah. that's nonsense. Sometimes we look to the past and we say, not everything we did back then was good, obviously, 
but we were right on this. And it makes more sense to go to the past and retrieve it because it's not about this progression that is the arc of history, but it's about for him and for us growing closer to Christ, having a, yeah. a hopefully a society that's more reflective of his grace and mercy and justice and all of those things. A, yeah. a maximizing the ability to love our neighbor in a society that flourishes under those conditions. And, and if, if, if the past was better at it in some way than today is, then we need to attend to today by fixing it, by going back and doing some things that we did in the past and, and not understanding that progression or understanding progression as good by nature, by the way that it does things, it puts us at risk of abandoning some very important things that we should be making intentional efforts to continue. The Jew, the Jewish tradition is much stronger about that than we are, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the Jewish tradition is to mark days and to remember God's work and to remind every generation that comes after the things that have happened, because those things resonate throughout every generation that is good to, to come. And the chronological view just abandons all that altogether. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I think, uh, you know, Christians have that possibility of recovering a kind of liturgical calendar recognition that that our lives should be marked by the advent, the incarnation of Christ, by the passion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, by Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's presence. And if each year we kind of um, move through that drama, you know, maybe it's uh, then that gives us the the sense of identity. Right. That, that's our, those events make define who we are and that's the moral center of our lives. Not, you know, are we getting better or worse? Yeah. Do we have principles right, the Jewish, that are more important than us right. as individuals? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, but the, yeah, the Jewish tradition has that great cycle of feasts that does so well at teaching and, and inscribing that identity upon a community. And, and, and central to their identity of their community, right? That you have to yeah. remember These who are the you events. are. Yes. Yeah. These, these events are, are what formed us as a people yeah. and they never should leave us. They, they just because yeah. they happened long ago, doesn't mean that they're not still important to how we understand. And the chronological snobbery and the things that we hear about that many authors have warned us about before we move on to the next point, I, I think is uh, it, it does put you in a position of not having to be corrected by the past. Right. I mean, I yeah. know you said that like history doesn't tell a story by itself. Right. It, it's our, our how we inhabit the events of the past and wrestle with them. And, and you see it even today. I remember talking to somebody in Europe a few years ago and we were discussing because I was discussing the things like eugenic ideas. I mean, the idea that we should have just the, the most healthy, the most powerful, the most intelligent, the, the fastest, the fleetest of all of these things. That this should be the progress that we're looking for. And then we should attend to those things with genetics. And, and I was like, we're getting to a place, I asked them, as somebody who lived in Europe, said, are we getting to a place where we have forgotten the devastating lessons of the eugenics movement of the early 20th century, particularly as how it played out in Europe and even more particularly yeah. in Germany, uh, so that there was an embarrassment to talk into those terms for about 50 years because of yeah. what, what they led to. We said, but now it feels like our memory is short, the embarrassment is over, and we're back into that place where it's just, we're back where if we can create better life, better human beings, a better world, then it's our obligation and duty to find some way to genetically weed out, to work out the things that are less desirable. And, and the danger of what that does immediately to, yeah. to, to start thinking in those terms. And that person 
Jack's response terrified me because they said, Oh, you're you, I feel like you're 10 years behind Jay. He's like, we, we are seeing it in real time here playing out as the, we have, we have lost every lesson that we seem to have learned back then because we've been able to categorize those people. Let's say particularly the Nazi party or Hitler or something. They are monsters of history that don't in any way reflect what we are today. Yeah. Right. Because we have progressed beyond it. They don't in any way impact the people that we are today. And so we're losing the ability uh, to guard, to guard ourselves from what we're capable of doing. If we let bad ideas just cultivate in there, if you, if you see it as just this progression towards better, we're better, we're better, we're better. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, we are the same broken people. We always have been wrestling the best we can to bring into society and human community, justice, goodness, mercy, uh, benevolence, all of these things. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good warning because uh, certainly we're we're still capable of any uh, any atrocity that any human has been capable of, right? Yeah, throughout all human history, we're the, we're the same. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. didn't get we didn't get better. We just you know got cleaner a lot. I mean, there is that. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> all right, for your in your for your third, third point. All right, yeah. So the last section is about community, which which maybe does uh, kind of tie in with some of the things we've been talking about. Um, but I think one of the reasons we try to tune into the news is we have this fear of missing out on what's going on, right? We want to be connected to our, to our communities and that's a good thing. And that is a, an important role that the news can play, but, uh, how we kind of navigate that community building function of the news is tricky because in our current ecosystem, so often the kinds of communities that develop are really shallow. And so, so. Uh, drawing onto other philosophers, I call this, these, just, these aren't communities, these are swarms. These are digital swarms that quickly develop, quickly get built up around some outrage, some issue. Uh, but then as soon as the issue's gone, they dissipate. Uh, and the next, so you always have to be finding some locus to, to draw the community around or it yeah. vanishes again. They're very fleeting. And I think, uh, you know, Zayn Tafuki talks about this in relation to some of the Arab Spring movements, how there was all kinds of attention, all kinds of energy. It was really exciting to be in these protests about, you know, uh, unjust governments in the Middle East. But no real change was affected because the very nature of the communities that was built by Twitter and social media, uh, these communities were inadequate to actually result in sustained, difficult patient work. When, when like thorny challenges came up, people just moved on to the next outrage. Um, so, so the kinds of communities that we need to address real problems in our lives and our governments and our societies will not be built around, uh, will not be built on social media fueled outrage. Those are just going to fuel swarms. The kind of communities we need are those, you know, cultivated in local churches, uh, in institutions over the long haul so that we can uh, befriend one another and uh, out of those deep, more complex full relationships, uh, work together to, to try to imagine and then build or participate in building, uh, you know, God's kingdom where we're at. So I think recognizing that we, we need the news to um or that one of the functions of the news is to structure communities and that's a good thing 
but then recognizing the, the, the negative tendencies that the kind of swarms that tend to happen so that we can not be lured by that sort of false idol, uh, false simulacra, but rather seek after the real thing, the real kinds of communities that will sustain good work. Yeah, and that, I, I tell you what, when I read that description, this idea of digital swarms, it was both helpful and depressing in the sense that it was, okay, it, it does give a great, it gives a great vision, a view of what we're talking about, a great example of what you see in the world today. But it also is, it was an incredibly depressing realization how accurate I felt like that was to what you see unfold and how news cycles work today, right? It's like somebody walks over and kicks a hornet's nest and then everybody comes out and yeah. for the next 24 hours, they are going to be experts on this subject, right? Everybody is suddenly, whatever it is, we're all experts on submarines yeah. right now and, and, and implosions because of the yeah. tragedy. Right. And, and then and they're they're out of Googling things and they're posting everything and then that goes away. And then before that, we were all experts on, you know, for, I had to endure that when um, Dobbs versus Jackson uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, the the month there of all the constitutional law experts online that have never read yeah. a Supreme Court case, have no idea how the law works, don't have any idea what Roe v. Wade said, haven't even read Dobbs versus Jackson. They don't have the slightest idea what they're talking about, but they're all experts. And they're all talking at the same time. I think um, Carl Truman also offered some great insight to me and how all of that works in, in his works where he was talking about that idea of we used to go to community to be defined by community, right? And now we're, ah, going to, yes, yes. now we're going to community for some affirmation or recognition of what we are. We've psychologically determined yeah. what I am. That's an internal process. But now I don't need the community to either politically or religiously tell me how I fit into the world. I need the community to tell me that I'm brilliant and I'm great and that the things that I'm doing are okay. Uh, and, and that's the role that the community plays for me and the role. And then social media, both through your digital swarm and Truman's ideas there that he wrote about in the, the rise and triumph of the modern self, you know, they, yep. they come together to make social media as a, and which is the number one way people get news now is social media, like yeah. Twitter, Facebook, yeah. Instagram. That's where they're all getting their news from TikTok. It's a terrifying prospect because those are just cesspools of stupidity yeah. and misinformation, but, but that's where they're getting. The, and, and when you see, hear Truman or read Truman and read what you've written. And I, and I apply that to what we're seeing in, um, in the, in the way people are expressing themselves online. That that's why I say the digital swarm becomes a depressing idea, right? Because we're crazy activated. We get crazy focused on something for a very short period of time. And then given enough time, it just goes away. Right. And so, and so true evil, by the way, has nothing to fear. I mean, nothing to fear from, from the, the because they're not going to ever be able yeah. to be focused long enough to, to work in any cooperative way to limit the effects of true evil on society. It can, it can it, whatever, however you want to talk about whatever we think true evil is, those agents acting in an intentional way uh, to, to profit or to empower themselves through nefarious means have nothing to fear from the digital swarm because they can take down a bunch of people over a really short right. period of time but they just go off somewhere else very quickly as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And I think, I think in many ways, what Truman articulates about expressive individualism and the, the kind of uh, directional flip from receiving your identity as a gift from your community yeah. to yeah, uh, determine your identity internally and then 
requiring your community to, to affirm and celebrate that, I think that's it, it precisely why these digital swarms are so, uh, why they formed now, right? Because th this is a way that I can get my identity quickly affirmed by a lot of other people. Uh, I'll have the right opinion about the war in Ukraine or about this court case or whatever. And so we're all on the good side. Uh, there's no accountability. There's no kind of formation that occurs. And so yes. once that event that brought us together has been forgotten, we can all move on and we don't have to so deal with any kind of, now what do I do? What are the implications? What, what are my obligations? What are my responsibilities? We don't have to deal with that. And what, and, and if you care about that world, it can become dangerous to you, right? I mean, if, if you live yeah. in that world and because they do exert some power, there was a friend of mine many years ago who was ultimately destroyed by this sort of thing, uh, this online, I mean, he, he I genuinely, he was destroyed by it. And, and he, he lived to, you know, part of what he did, he's a great guy, but he kind of poked fun at it a little bit. And I remember he and I having uh, a conversation one night when we got together and he was throwing terms around dismissive terms of the power of this swarm. Right. Uh, and I warned him at the time. I said, I, 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 I'm very uncomfortable because I, I don't respect it. I agree with you. I don't respect it. But you seem to think of it as less dangerous than it is. And, and to me, it represents a real danger to other human beings. They, swarms are dangerous because they indiscriminately attack whatever's closest to them, right? I mean, I could walk up, I could kick off a hive, and then if I got farther away than somebody closer, before that hive will attack whoever's closest to them, right? And so yeah. the, the danger of the digital swarm is is whereas a community is thoughtful and reflective, hopefully, and they work together to identify problems and to find solutions uh, in, the, in the best sense of what we can be as human beings, we should work cooperatively in a coordinated effort to identify the areas in our society that are most important for us to deal with and then to deal with them in a way that helps all people. It, it, one of the things, and this is you know going a little bit farther afield, but one of the things I had a conversation with about with a local uh, uh, Democratic journalist many years ago here in the Atlanta area, when he had written something, I contacted him because he was just ripping on what he called gridlock in Congress. And I called him up and I said, look, man, I, I get where you're coming from, but did you ever occur to you that gridlock is the point? You know, we're not, we're not supposed to be able to rewrite the laws of the United States on whims of people every five minutes. It's supposed to be a process where we find the most important things that matter to everybody and then we can address them. And if you have something you think is important, you have the responsibility and duty to go to your community and convince them that it's important so that we can work together to get those things done. It, it should never operate so that we can just hold cloth, change everything all the time based on the momentary whims of where the culture is. It should always be something that's hard to do because that requires agreement. That requires us to say, we all think this is important, so we're all going to focus on changing that thing. Whereas the digital swarm attacks indiscriminately and aggressively and destroys its target. And before it's done swarming, it's done damage. And then by the time it dies, there's no reflection on how it happened, on what we could do to stop it going forward, because you can't. Because it's just this, as you talk about, we have, we've, we've ceased to be parts of a community. We've become atomized. We've become individuals within it. And, and we're no longer working cooperatively. We're joining a, an online swarm that gets worked up and crazy when something happens 
And we just start lashing out in directions, whether we're lashing out at the people who are saying X and I believe Y, or whether we're just all angry about something that happened and we want to take down something. The danger in it, or, or, or it's, it's, it's a mistake to underestimate its danger, to just see the curiosity of it uh, and to dismiss it as intellectually bereft of anything, but, uh, and not to see, it's also dangerous. It's dangerous because it's destructive to community because uh, it, it develops a pattern of get activated, destroy anything close to you, and then go dormant again until the next thing gets us going. And there's no way that can survive as a society. Yeah. Yeah, because it can do real damage to its targets, but it also is doing real damage to the people who are part of those swarms, right? They, yes. they are learning to not, not uh, seek out real human communities because they're being satisfied with a, a kind of false substitute yes um so so they are as individuals suffering drastically as well yeah i think the, the challenge then is is finding you know this is where, where sometimes i suppose my book is not very uh revolutionary right i mean I, I think the solution is like robust healthy local churches uh, where, <laughs> where people are belong where there's discipleship that takes place where they feel a sense of like, this is where my identity is coming from. So, uh, and that is formative, right? That changes yeah. who you are as a person, as an individual. And then hopefully it becomes a kind of institutional types of communities to address the needs um, that you, that God is calling you to, to engage in, right? That we're not all called to respond to the same needs. The body of Christ has many members, but uh, you know, how, what, what communities is God calling you to participate in? And what issues is he calling you to respond to? And then do, you know, do those well, rather than getting out. We're not all called to respond to the same needs. The body of Christ has many members, but uh, you know, how, what, what communities is God calling you to participate in and what issues is he calling you to respond to? And then do, you know, do those well, rather than getting outraged by, by everything that is uh, coming down the social media stream. Bowl, like as you mentioned, bowl in leagues, not alone, right? Like go bowling in a right, league. Don't, right. don't bowl alone. It's, right. it's, it's a community. And it, you, that's one of the points I think you make in the book that I really thought about a lot. That Because I tried to remember when I was younger, all the different groups my parents were involved in, how many different community things we were involved in as a family, right? We, we had in the South, we had swim, like swim meets dominate the summer right? oh, yeah. when, the sun, when the summer comes, it is community swim meet time and it is neighbor and you're a part. It's a, it's a real thing, right? You're it's our neighborhood yeah. against your neighborhood and it's all summer. And, and it is these long, not just the practicing, but the, the meets and their events and you have celebrations around them. And, and my mom was a member of bowling leagues and it's like everything you did when I was younger, you did as part of a league or as a part of a community. And I, when you said that or wrote that in the book about bowling, made that reference to bowling alone versus bowling in leagues, there was that sense of, wow, we've really lost. And it, it's something, and at the same time, I started to value the places where I do have community. My youngest, yeah. uh, who I mentioned, plays on a lacrosse team. She plays on one of the, in her age group, one of the top five lacrosse teams in the country. Uh, and and it's, it can feel like a burden when, when she's doing all of these things, but then you stop and I reflected, this is a community that I'm a part of, right? We're, we're different people from different backgrounds with different beliefs. And yet we're all coming together and 
giving our daughters a place to play and traveling together. And we get together when we're on the road and we eat together and it it does become something where you are, you are required to come together and talk to people who just have, you have nothing in common with them except for the fact your daughters play together on this team. And we, and then I talk to people from other parts of the country that are on on different teams and, and it is, it really did help me to appreciate that. I mean, I, I, that was one of the things that I, I even talked to my wife about this morning before I came here was that his book really made me appreciate my lacrosse community more. However, however much there's an intensity of competition, it still is a community thing. We're all coming together and talking to each other and it, it has grown my community and there are people in it that wouldn't have been a part of it. And it creates conversations and opportunities to do things. And in, in that way, that's why I wanted to bring that up because it's not just the the idea of we go to church because church is good for us. Cause you said, it's not revolutionary. We're just saying we need churches that are a part of the community. Uh, it's also that churches within a body have groups within them that help you connect other yeah. things, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not just going to church on Sunday. It's that if we get together as a right. community, we find in our community, people with common interest and we grow those groups that you're talking about. And that reattaches us to our communities most people I know don't know their neighbors at all anymore. I mean, they have no idea who their neighbors are for the most part. COVID changed that a little bit. I remember when my wife and I would start walking around the neighborhood every night during when COVID lockdown started. And then everybody else came out and started walking around. And for the first time in all of our time that we lived in that neighborhood, I knew who almost everybody in my neighborhood was. And it, it was like, why did these nightly walks have to go away just because we weren't locked down anymore? That was a great thing that we all just walked and talked to each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. That there are still opportunities to recover, you know, instead of uh, interacting with somebody's avatar based on like what their political policy positions are, you have to have dinner with people. You might not know anything about their religious background, their political background, but their daughter also plays lacrosse, right? Yeah. That provides opportunity for these conversations that otherwise wouldn't happen. So I, I think definitely the, the kind of social fabric of America has weakened in recent decades, but it's not gone yet. You know, there's still opportunities, you know, going to these events, dealing with annoying, odd, weird people, yeah. Uh, but embracing them as like, these are my neighbors. I have to get to know them and I have to, to collaborate with them. If we're going to have a lacrosse league, if we're going to do this thing in our community, it's going to require the messiness of human community. Yep. But uh, that's kind of what we're called to do. And we're going to talk so, to people that yeah. we find off-putting, and we're going to coordinate yes. efforts with people that I would not <laughs> normally want to talk to uh, because we right. have a common goal to get this done. And, yeah. I, and yeah. I will say, I want to talk about this before we end here uh, because I think this is the real danger for me uh, when I was reading it was the, the, the last put on the, the swarm, the digital swarm, there was a focus on loneliness uh, and the, the growing plague of loneliness. I've talked a lot on this show about how many of the organizations that I know that open up an opportunity for people to contact them throughout the world for very specific reasons, find people contacting them because they're lonely. They, they, they're like, they say, we want to answer apologetics yeah. questions. Somebody calls them up and tells them they're lonely. We want to answer. We want to be available for you to deal with theological questions. People call them and tell them they're lonely. And this isn't totally new. Uh, I remember Billy Graham many, many years ago when he visited New York for one of his, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking up for here, JD? 
Crusades. Crusades. That's right. Thank you. He, he, we both got there at the same yeah. time. So Billy Graham on his when his crusade in New York, I remember him mentioning New York is a city of 8 million people and it's the loneliest city I've ever been to. That, uh, you know, it, there are there are more people here than anywhere I've ever been and, and everyone's lonely. Everyone is suffering from loneliness. And so it's not just that the digital swarm is dangerous. It's that without real genuine community, you are left alone in this world. And my, yeah. my kids tell me, um, during COVID and after, when I would talk to my kids about their generation, I said, what are, how many of their friends are struggling with depression? It's, it's alarming. Yeah. The number yeah. of young people that are struggling, deep depression, not just blues, not just not happy, but deeply depressed and, and dysfunctional people uh, because they just can't process the world that they live in and they feel alone. They feel like they're the only one going through. It was an interesting, I'll turn it over to you in a second. I just heard actually a discussion about this. I believe it was in South Korea where they were talking about these people, these young people who have just given up on society and they have to have a focus yeah. on getting them to come out and realize that they're not alone in their despair. And just even that, if they say, if they have houses, housing, where they'll bring these South Korean youth in and they'll say, live in this housing with us. And when you live here, you'll realize you're not alone in your despair. And that helps to bring them out of it so that there is a despairing quality that is, that is driven by this as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes if you're feeling lonely, the easiest way to feel connected is to like, well, what is there, everybody else is caring about this submarine search? I, I, maybe if I know about that, I'll feel like I'm a part of a community or you know, maybe if I follow this sports team, I'll feel like I'm a part of this community. Um, but those are really inadequate cures to that underlying problem of atomization and of disconnection that is going to lead to, as you say, this these kind of staggering uh, experiences of depression and anxiety that so many young people today feel. So I, I think our challenge is to kind of redirect that, um, that, that recognized felt need toward the sources that will really satisfy it. Uh, you know, your family, your church, your the body of Christ primarily, but all these other local institutions rather than, um, toward the, the kind of low hanging fruit that, that, that seems like it's going to satisfy that need, but ultimately just kind of perpetuates it. These, uh, these online swarms that, promise belonging, but can't really deliver on that promise. So in a nutshell, give us a, a your, your, I know we said the church is answer getting focused back yeah. on, but how, how would we, how I'm talking to my 20 year old who is yeah. a political science major. He is wanting to go to law school. He has a hope to work and use all that for ministry. I have a daughter leaving for Italy soon. She is a, an education major. I'm talking to my kids. What, what advice do we give young Christians, young people, anybody about how to, in, how to approach news as Christians? Yeah. I mean, I guess going back to where we started, uh, I would just say the new, your, your news consumption, your news engagement should be in the service of your love for your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, and when it becomes an end in itself, when it becomes uh, something that you do to keep keep yourself entertained or amused or to feel good about yourself, you know, to feel like you're on the right side of history, to feel like you belong, that's when it's been subverted from the right end and uh, has become an idol. 
which I think it, it often is today. So, uh, yeah, what, what is this? What is your news consumption serving? Is it enabling you to better love your neighbor? Yeah. And if not, then, then cut it out. And, and, and address it so that it is, right? One of the things I told yeah, myself. Yeah, redirect, yeah. Redirect was that, you know, I, I said, it's important for you to know what's going on in the world. I said, so I would advise you not first thing in the morning, be reflective when you first wake up, but early in the day, see what's happened in the world. And then when you, when you establish that the world is not totally on fire, uh, that it, it maintained its existence through the night while you were sleeping, that there may be a couple of major things that happened that were worth your attention, then walk away. Right. Then don't don't search no. out every little detail about what happened everywhere. All that. Just find out what's going on. And then as yeah. soon as you've established that the world is continuing to function, uh, move on with your day and go yeah. go find somebody to talk to. Right. Don't let it become something that, that yeah. blocks you. All right. Uh, yeah, I think it's good advice. And the only thing I'd add there is. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Good, please. Oh, the only thing I'd add there is, you know, maybe discern what, what is the one or two issues that God is calling you to be engaged in more deeply yes. and, you know, follow those stories, even when the swarms are on something else. You know, you, you talked about this with the Dobbs, Dobbs uh, decision. It, it, sometimes people will care about the issue you you're care about, and that gives you an opportunity to speak into it, hopefully, helpfully. Yes. Uh, but a lot of times people won't care about what you care about, and that's okay. Yep. Uh, it's still an important issue, right? Uh, just because it's not the issue of the day. And, if, and to the other side of that, one of the great, for me, one of the disciplines I've tried to develop is that when events are happening in the world, that I really don't have anything particularly interesting to say about them. I just don't say anything. Amen. That, that, that's the, <laughs> the weirdest thing to me is how people feel this pressure to comment on everything. Yeah. And and I've had to fight people in audiences where they keep asking me about yeah. a subject and I say, why do you care what I think? I know nothing more about what you're asking me than any other person that you would ask in this world. Yeah. Just because I know an awful lot about this stuff right here doesn't mean right. I have anything to say about these other things over here. And so um, the, yeah. I've asked people in the past, I've said, please don't feel like you have to comment on everything. Sometimes things yeah. happen that you just don't have to have an opinion on. Exactly right. Yeah. And it's just beyond me, right? Some, I got a call one time about uh, how to, what I, what I think people should do in regards to the immigrants that were coming through Mexico to the U.S. border and I, I, my response, I think, was deeply uh, upsetting to them because I said, I haven't been down there, so I don't know who these people are. I haven't talked to them. I hear about alarming things that are happening to them, and I hear other people that are alarmed about the results of them being there. So I'm going to be left to pray that the people that actually know what's going on down there are doing right, and that the people that are enduring this are being taken care of by God, and that if there's anything I can do, that God will show me, right? But they're just, I just can't, and I, I don't know how to respond to something that I don't know anything about more than the headlines that have come through and this crazy amount of yeah. outrage that a bunch of my friends on Facebook feel about it because I just don't know right. enough to react to anything yet. Uh, and uh, I, I think I yeah. felt good. I think when Edmund Burke said something about that with the French Revolution, when people kept saying, why haven't you responded to the French Revolution? His response was, I don't know whether it's good or bad or what's going on. It's all happening. There's nothing for me to say about it yet. I yeah. just want to wait and see what happens before I feel the need to write extensively on it. Yeah, that's such a, we have to recognize our human limits. And I, when we have the capability to speak about anything instantly, right, through social media, yeah. then we feel like we have to say something. 
but we don't just because we have the capacity uh doesn't mean we have to to uh exercise that and then usually uh the better course is silence i mean what is what does solomon say uh, even the fool is thought wise if he keeps silent so it's yeah, good advice that's right and and to, to to realize that people really aren't waiting to hear what i think about it Right. They're, they're not like logging yeah. in. What does Jay think? I'm going to open up my computer yeah. to find out where Jay's position on. They just, I've tried my hardest to restrict my opinions on things that people have already asked me about. And it's depressing how little I have to talk about when I use that as my my, my standard for us. Like yeah. They just yeah. only care about what I think about a very narrow number of things. And, and for the rest of the world, they just don't. And, and that need is like there. Yep. I've seen people say, I'm sorry I haven't commented on this. Like, why? Because nobody cares. There was no reason for you to be sorry. Yeah. Nobody was missing it. Nobody was sitting around saying, Yeah, wow, they haven't. Joe hasn't commented on this yet. I really need to know where Joe is on that. I need All my right. electrical company to comment on the story. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Everybody's got to be, I said, we're all experts on everything now. And, and yeah. tomorrow we'll be an expert on something. Else. Jeff, I really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate your book, Reading appreciate. the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. I think um, I, 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 I'm very happy. I, I, I like the, the how I think it's concise. I like that about it in the sense that you're it's powerful. It's on point, And then we move on. Uh, and and, and I'm, what I mean by that is that sometimes when you when academics write books, it's hard to give them to people uh, because they they say exactly what they meant and everything interesting happened really early in the book. And then we've got pages and pages and pages of them restating themselves. And that's what I, lo I loved about this book. It was sharp. It was insightful. It, it taught me things that I didn't know. It helped me to think about things in a new way and to really consider what I think is an incredibly important issue. How are we interacting with the news and how do we understand what we are in the midst of the kind of news that we're dealing with. Uh, but it did it in a way that as soon as I was done, I immediately wanted to give to other people and say, just read this, just read this and think about it. Right. It's, it's just, it's grist for the mill, man. We need to be seriously reflecting on how we approach news as Christians and as human beings in this world. Because as you, as we repeatedly said, the end of this is to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. And I'm, I'm convinced that our current relationship with the news hinders that far more than it helps. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Anytime and um, uh, have a great day, man. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Human Things Podcast. As always, if you like the material that we're producing, you can go to merelyhumanministries.org and contribute to our cause. We are going to lining up more guests, lining up more subject matters, more episodes, more weird animal facts. Uh, and next episode, we are going to be talking about, just so that in addition to any guests I can line up, uh, we're going to start addressing, uh, in short and brief as possible, weird pro-life, pro-choice argument analogies. Man, if you know anything about the philosophical argument about the pro-life position and the pro-choice position, it is weird analogies are everywhere. And so... Let's just break some of them out, whether or not there's like oysters who turn into fully sentient beings when they're moved to Mars or or cats who become intelligent when given a certain shot or even uh, one of my favorites, Henry Fonda's cooling hands. We're going to talk about weird analogies, and that's going to become a regular segment on the show. Uh, thank you. Please contribute to the cause. If you're hate listeners, again, contribute more because we're going to keep giving you great stuff to hate. If you're those people out there that loyal listeners, 
Uh, thank you so much. We have already, we've already received gifts and I really do appreciate whoever you are that are sending in the anonymous gifts. You have our, our deepest gratitude for it. And we are committed to continue to make material for you and to take the material that we're making and we're going to release it in the different formats as well. We have already started releasing the first of what we call merely interviews is what I said we're going to call it, right? Merely interviews. So we're going to start as we move into season two, releasing some of the interviews from season one as standalone segments. Thank you very much. Have a great day. We look forward to seeing you next time.